I, I want to share with you uh, a study that I read this week. Last week, I shared a few statistics that uh, the Barna Group did on the life of the church. And I came across another study this week that's gone over the last couple years of the American church. And it's some kind of striking uh, stats that come out of it. The first thing that is, they gathered a bunch of people in this study, and there's thousands and thousands of people that they interviewed. And they said, I want you to tell me the top 10 things that are important to your faith top 10 things that are important to your faith. And in their study, attending church did not crack the top 10. That's kind of startling, right? Then they interviewed millennials, which is a a large majority of us in this room. And uh, 35% of millennials have an anti-church stance. Some hostile in terms of don't want to ever step foot in church. And some just don't see it as necessary or important or providing any kind of benefit to their faith. They also looked at uh, a study on uh, different Christians that identified as Christian, and they found that three and maybe even in some states and trending towards two out of every 10 actually go to church. So only about two out of 10, maybe three out of 10 Christians go to church. And then this was maybe the most shocking to me. They interviewed, again, millennials, and they said, do you think the church is in fact the hands and feet of God? And 11% of people said yes. 11%. So Christ installs a church and encourages the disciples to go out and to plant churches and to bring the gospel. And the church is the institution by which God is going to bring the gospel to the people, care for people, serve people, love people, really be the hands and feet of God in cities and on this earth. And only 11% of millennials think that is in fact true. And I think what happens is when you look at these stats and when you process these things, you begin to realize that Something has happened with our understanding of church. Something has happened with our understanding of corporate worship. We ask the question, does corporate worship even matter? Is it important? Is it vital? Should it be prioritized? Does it matter if I attend church or if I don't attend church? Can I achieve the same spiritual benefit? Can I grow spiritually without attending church? Can I just go to church when I feel like it, when I need a little extra oomph? You know, I need a little something extra. And so that's when I go to church. Or do I not even need to do it all together. And I think part of it too is like, there's a misunderstanding and a lack of understanding in many ways of what we actually do in church, right? So some of the elements of church and what takes place, why do we do it? And what's the significance? And is it just ritual? Is it just simply religion that we're week by week continuing to do over and over and over again? And here's the good news. Nehemiah chapter eight answers all of those questions. And so if you've been with us and you've been going through this series in Nehemiah called Making Your House a Home, we've seen many, many things happen. And what we left off last week, which was in Nehemiah 5, they begin to call out some people that are a part of God's community that aren't contributing. So they're all building this wall and everyone has a role. Everybody's sacrificing. A lot of people are leveraging their family and their jobs in many ways. They're giving time. They're giving talent. They're giving treasure. And there's a group of people that aren't giving anything. It happened to be the nobles or the officials and the wealthy, and they weren't willing to give money. They weren't willing to give time. They weren't willing to give really anything. And so Nehemiah calls them out and says, the people of God are called to contribute, not just consume. And so they kind of get back with the program and they get invested and all the people of God come together. They're all contributing in different levels and different ways. And if you look in chapter six and seven, they finish the wall. The wall gets built in 52 days. 52 days, the people of God build the walls in Jerusalem. But they face more opposition. These guys that we've been 
reading about Tobiah and Geshem and Sambalat, they uh, still want to halt the work of God. And so they, they threaten to go to Persia, to go to Artaxerxes, the king, and say, listen, uh, Nehemiah is actually planning to become the king of Judah, and he wants to revolt. So they say, we're going to go do that. We're going to tell them they're putting all these threats, all this opposition on Nehemiah and the people of God. And it says in chapter 6 that they strengthen their hands once again for the work and trust the Lord and continue and push through opposition. Then in chapter 7, they begin to celebrate. And in chapter 7, they begin to list a whole bunch of names again. And they begin to put people in genealogy. And they're, they're bringing together a record of all the people that were involved in the wall. That gave time. That gave talent. They even go as far as to label and to write out how much people gave financially towards the wall. And so they're celebrating all that God has done. And we actually read that the enemies of God and the neighbors were, were afraid because they knew that the wall could only be accomplished with the help of God. And so we get, that's all what has taken place as we get to chapter eight. And in chapter eight, the celebration continues. And what is taking place here is a worship service. They're worshiping and praising God that he helped them to accomplish this great feat of building this wall in 52 days, recognizing, in fact, that it was his vision and his burden in the first place that they just got to be a part of. And so they begin to celebrate and they begin to worship. And it says in the very beginning, it says, all the people gathered as one person in the town square in front of the water gate. It's, it's at the first day of the seventh month, which would have been a day of rest. It was a Sabbath. So this day is holy. And it is a day for refreshment and relaxation. It's a day to rest from your normal activities. And it's a day for worship. It's the Sabbath. So they gather on this day. They all come together and they begin to have a worship service as men, women, children, a whole community gathers outside the water gate in this square. And it says they worship as one person. All the people are gathered together as one person. One of the things you see here that in corporate worship, something unique happens that is actually a good thing. And it's that you lose your individuality. When you gather together in corporate worship, there is some sense in which you're supposed to lose some of your individuality to gather as one person. It's the beauty of corporate worship, right? We are different people with different pain, different sin, different temptations, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes, different social statuses, different ethnicities, all coming together as one person. We are united. We may not be uniform, but we're united. We are no better or no worse than the person sitting next to us or behind us or in front of us, but we are gathered together under the umbrella of God's grace coming before God not as simply Carter, but as one person, as the family of God gathered together. And that's what's taking place here. And this is, this is God's design, right? His design is that in Christ, when you come to Christ in faith and you understand God's grace, that you, you gain an identity in Christ, right? Your identity now becomes Christ, but also you have an identity rooted in his people, you're not, it's not only individual, right? You're not, your identity is not only in Christ, but it also becomes in his people where you gather together corporately on the day of rest, the Sabbath, and you worship as one people, as one person. And as they begin to gather together, this guy comes on scene that we talked about the very first sermon, uh, Nehemiah 1, his name's Ezra. And Ezra is a priest, he's a scribe. Essentially, the way of thinking of Ezra is he is a religious reformer. He's a pastor. 
And he's trying to reform the hearts and the minds of the people to really understand God's truth and to live out God's truth. Nehemiah is focused on the wall. Ezra is focused on their spiritual life. And so Ezra gets up and he's going to preach. This is what pastors love to do. They love to talk and they love to preach. And so he's going to preach. They're going to, they erect this wooden box for him so that everybody can see him and they can hear him clearly. Now we just have microphones, but they are, they put this box, right? And Ezra gets up on the box and he's going to preach a sermon. He's going to read from God's word to all the people in this worship service. And it says that he reads from the book of the law and other translations say the book of the revelation of Moses. And what he's reading is excerpts and passages from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. He's reading to them, to all the people, and he's preaching a sermon. And they're listening. It says in verse 5, Ezra opened the book and every eye was on him. And he opened the book and everyone stood. There's some sense in this service that in a worship service, one of the most important elements is that there's to be reverence, right? There's to be reverence and respect Towards God, And so the people come together. Ezra opens the scroll. He's going to read from God's word. And before he reads, everybody stands. Maybe you've wondered, why do we stand when we read God's word? It's a sign of reverence, right? If you're at a restaurant and you're sitting down and you're eating dinner and somebody comes up to you that you know and they say, hi, do you stand up? I hope so. If not, that's really rude, right? You don't like sit there and keep eating. You're like, hi, nice to see you. Shake your hand. They're like way up there. No, you stand up, right? You have a conversation, you give them a hug, and then you sit back down. It used to be common practice that when a woman would come to the table, all the men stood. Now, if you do that, people are like, why are you standing up? You're like, I don't know. I thought I was supposed to. And then people look at you weird. But when you, when you go to a sporting event, they play the national anthem. What do you do? You stand. When someone performs something, that is exceptional or read something or says something that's exceptional, you give them a standing ovation. You go into a courtroom. When the judge enters, you stand, right? Standing is a sign of respect. It communicates reverence. And so the people here, as Ezra, the pastor, reads God's word, they stand out of respect, out of reverence, out of a sign that what is being read is actually above us, that it carries weight, it carries responsibility, that we are to sit under its authority. And so in the same fashion, this is the reason that we stand, right, when we read God's word together in a corporate worship service. And it's also the reason at the end of it, you may have picked up on this if you've been coming for some time. We say the word of the Lord and you say, we'll do it again. We say the word of the Lord and you say, thanks be to God, right? It is not something that we just do as a ritual, but it is something to remind us that God's word is to be respected, that we are to be thankful because it is in fact a gift. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. God, that we have it, that it's, it, we have possession of it. We can read from it. We can stand and show it respect because it's accessible to us, right? We have a bunch of Bibles. I don't know how many Bibles you have. Maybe you ha we have Bibles for all different occasions. You have a, a pocket Bible. You have a leather Bible, which is the show-off Bible, right? You have a wide margin Bible so you can take notes. You have the e-Bible, which is what most of us use now. It is on our phone. You can do any translation you want. Pretty amazing. You have a teen Bible. You have a children's Bible. We have all different types of Bibles. I think one of the problems is, is that because we have such exposure to it, it's so readily available to us that it can lose its value in some sense. 
right? Have you ever had friends come to Miami and visit you? And here's, this happens almost every single time, at least for me. They come and they say, oh my gosh, I would be at the beach every single day, right? And you're like, I haven't been to the beach in six months. Because it's so readily available that we, it loses its value. I mean, we don't go to the beach every single weekend. Maybe you do and you have a great tan, but most of us don't go every single weekend because we know we can go whenever. I drink coffee every single day, all day long to stay alive. I don't know about you, but if I only drink one cup of coffee a week, man, I would like really value that because it would just be the most delicious thing ever. But what I'm not saying in that is, hey, only read your Bible once a week. So therefore it holds a lot of value. You know, like Carter, I don't read the Bible, you know, because I only read it one time a week because I really want it to be valuable to me. The, the ironic thing with scripture is that the more you read it, the more valuable it becomes, right? Because it changes you. It transforms you. You begin to see God's grace and his truth and his love. And, and so part of the reason why we stand in reverence when we read God's word, part of the reason why we respond with thanks be to God when whoever is reading says the word of the Lord is because we're to remind ourselves that this is something to respect. It's something to show reverence to. Because it can be easy for us with all of our Bibles and how easily we, ex- we are able to access it to forget about that. That it is in fact actually God's word, a gift given to us readily available. And one of the things that you see in this worship service uh, that takes place in Nehemiah 8 is not only are the people showing respect and standing before God's word with reverence, but they also bring their whole self into the worship service. Look at verse six. It says, Ezra praised God and the great God and the people responded, amen, amen. With their hands raised high and they fell to their knees and worship their faces to the ground. They're gathered together. They stand to read God's word and then they respond, amen, amen. They raise their hands up high and they bow their knees and put their knees on the ground, their faces to the ground in worship. And this is another aspect of worship, which is really important, especially in corporate worship. It is not only a mental activity. Look what happens here. They respond, amen, amen, or yes, yes. Worship is audible. And they also raise their hands and put their knees and their face to the ground because worship is also expressive. See, typically, this is the moment where in corporate worship, many of us advocate for individual worship, right? Right? Because this is where it can get a little uncomfortable. Because you may think to yourself, I I don't sing, Carter, because I have a really bad voice. Or I don't sing because I don't really like the song. Or I don't sing because I have a really hard time carrying the tune and I'm nervous if people hear me. (laughs) Or I don't sing because I don't really understand why it matters if I sing or if I don't. I don't clap my hands because I don't want to be the awkward person that's the only one clapping, right? I don't raise my hands when I worship or when I sing to God because I don't really understand why people do that and I'm not actually a very expressive person. I don't raise my hands because I don't think it's necessary. For me, it's more about the words. It's more about what I'm thinking as I'm singing the song. I don't raise my hands because I really don't want people to look at me because if they look at me and have my hands raised, what are they going to think? That I'm worshiping God? Oh my gosh. Right? Maybe you even think that opening your hands for the benediction is hard enough. Right? 
That's hard enough. So this is the moment, right, where we say, okay, I understand that I'm in a, a place of corporate worship, but this is really where it becomes individual. I sing if I feel like it, if I like the song, or if I'm good. I raise my hands if I'm expressive, and that's kind of my personality. And I clap if everybody claps first and I can just join in. And that's, in some sense, uh, wrong, right? Because worship is to be expressive. It's to be audible. There's a comedian that talks about hand-raising in the church. And I want to tell you a few things he says. He says, here are the different positions of hand-raising, okay? He says, you have carry the TV right here. Carry the widescreen TV right here. My fish is this big. My fish is this big. His name's Tim Hawkins. He says, hold my baby. This is hold my baby right here. Dueling light bulbs. I don't know if you've ever seen this one before. This is dueling light bulbs. Goal posts, right? Goal posts. Mufasa. Put the Mufasa out there. Then he says you have pointer hatchet schoolroom, right? Some people do washing the windows, Got to really wash the windows. High five God. You can high five God. Sometimes you can do a heartburn, go back to high five God, you know. Then you have the big three. The big three is village people, Rocky, touchdown, right? So these are the different moments. Maybe there's some more different aspects of how people raise their hands. And you're like, exactly, Carter. That's why I don't raise my hands because it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. I don't want a Mufasa. I don't understand why I'm supposed to do this. Plus, that's why I came to a Presbyterian church, because in a Presbyterian church, there's a plateau. When you raise your hands, you can't really go above the Presbyterian plateau. This is just enough to where no one behind you can tell, you know, only your friends next to you know what's going on. You can't, you can't get through that. Exactly. Right. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking like, I would like to raise my hands when I sing, but like no one else really is. So I don't want to be that person. See, This is the moment where when you look at raising your hands and whether or not you should raise your hands and whether or not you should sing. And you've noticed maybe I'm maybe I'm making this aspect of corporate worship more individual. There are two problems that arise with the thoughts of I don't sing because I don't like the song or I don't have a good voice or I feel awkward if people hear me. And I don't raise my hands because I don't want people to see me. I feel weird with people looking at me. I'm reserved. It's not my personality or I don't get it. There's two problems with that one is that you've probably made corporate worship individual, right? It's here, the people all respond, amen, amen. And when we gather together to sing, we are to sing together with one voice, whether or not you have a great voice or whether or not you sound like a delirious person thinking they can make it on American Idol. We gather together with one voice because we've come together as one person, Different people coming together as one person. You can listen to podcasts and a Bethel album or Chris Tomlin, whoever you listen to, and you don't have to sing on your own. But corporately, we come together with one voice as one person. Some of us are good, some of us are not. But it's corporate worship. And then the second thing that happens that is another problem is that we can make worship, corporate worship, personality-driven. It becomes more about our personality than about get coming together to worship. And that doesn't mean that thinking isn't important. Thinking is very important. It's very important that you think about the lyrics that you sing, you're singing, the prayers that we're praying, that you're processing that. And you may think to yourself, Carter, I'm not expressive. I'm not expressive in any place in my life. I'm more reserved. 
And so it, to me, I don't need to raise my hands when I sing. And it's awesome that God has made all of us unique, that there's introverts and extroverts, and some of us raise our hands all the time, and some of us are barely doing the benediction. But one of the things that is true is that worship is expressive. And so for the expressive worshiper, for the extrovert like myself, I have to be very careful that I just don't raise my hands because it's ritual. That I don't raise my hands to kind of create a more powerful moment or to really make the experience seem deeper because I'm being expressive with my hands. I'm actually thinking about what I'm doing. Why am I opening my hands? Why am I putting my hands up to, the, up to God in praise? Because it can even be for the expressive person, personality-driven and not spirit-led. And for the reserved worshiper, it can be the same thing, right? That you don't raise your hands, you don't open your hands, you're not expressive in worship in any way because it's not your style, or you feel uncomfortable, or you're just more reserved personality-wise. And that also is not spirit-led. See, one of the things that is very clear, so what I know, is that worship is to be led by the Spirit, not led by our personalities. And that also means that worship is not based on how you feel. It is not based on whether or not you feel like singing. It is not based on whether or not you feel like raising your hands. It's not based on whether or not you feel like listening. It is to be led by the Spirit. There are times where we're going to gather together, and you're not going to feel like singing. Because it was a hard week. And the words on the screen are really hard for you to believe in the moment. But yet in faith, through the Spirit, you can sing in faith. You can open your hands in love to God. You can pray and listen to God's word with hope. See, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Spirit searches the deep things of God. Spirit searches the depths of God. The Spirit isn't just something that is an emotional feeling. The Spirit actually brings truth in the midst of your feelings that may be leading you to, to not desire to worship. See, we are to be led by the Spirit, not our personalities. And worship is expressive and it is audible whether or not we feel like it. And so here's what I know. We are all called to sing regardless of whether we like the song, regardless of whether or not you think you're a good singer. And there will be times where the Spirit may lead you to be expressive in worship, like you see in this passage of raising your hands or opening your hands to receive the words that you're singing, putting your hands up to praise God for who he is. There may be times that you raise your hands to do that. And one of the things that is very true is that if that has never happened, then you're probably lending yourself to being personality-driven in worship. And if you raise your hands for every single song, you're probably also personality-driven in regards to worship. Where we're called, as you see here, to be spirit-led. Because worship is a place of reverence to God. It is audible and it is expressive. And then the next thing you see in this passage is that worship also happens in the context of small groups. They're gathered together, they're worshiping God, they're standing and revering God's word and respecting God's word. They're raising their hands, they're falling to their knees, they're audible together, shouting aloud with one voice, gather as one person, and then something unique happens. They break into small groups, and the community leaders come around and lead these small groups of people that are going to study God's word in a more intimate community. 
That's what happens in the context of this passage. And so one of the things that you see is that the natural outflow of corporate worship is to then plug into small group worship. That corporate worship lends itself to push and to motivate and to encourage you to then get into a small group where you can really listen and learn and come around God's word, where you can share your doubts, where you can ask questions, where you can hear how God is teaching and what someone else is processing that can be encouraging to you, that can maybe be convicting to you, that you yourself can also share something that somebody else needs to hear. That coming together with other people that are on the spiritual journey of faith in small groups is vital to the Christian life. You see it all the way back in Nehemiah 8. This is not a new invention. This is not an American church or Western church or 20th century invention, community groups or small groups. You see it here all the way in Nehemiah 8 as they break into these small groups and they have leaders that are leading them through God's word in intimate community. And then they come back together. They gather everybody back together at the end and something really interesting happens that you wouldn't expect. It says that the people start to weep. They said this, Because all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the revelation or of the book of the law. So they're in this worship service. Everyone gathered together as one person, audible, expressive, revering God's word, breaking apart in small groups, and then coming back together. And everyone starts to cry. Everyone starts to mourn and to weep. And the question is why? Well, it tells us that they're mourning because they're reading the book of the law. The law which is God's design, his intention for how you are to live. They're reading that and they're realizing that they don't measure up. It's condemning. It's convicting. They know that God has required perfection out of them and they're reading through the, through scripture and they're saying, Whoa, we're not fulfilling any of these things. We can't even uphold one of the Ten Commandments. Idols, we have those. Coveting, yes. Lying, yes. Respecting our parents, no. Keeping the Sabbath holy, today we are, but last week we didn't. They're realizing that they cannot uphold God's design. They can't uphold God's law. And it's convicting to them. It's condemning to them and they're mourning and they're weeping. And maybe you sit there and you have a hard time relating with that because you're like, I know I'm flawed. I know I'm broken and I know I cannot uphold God's law. So to really understand what it's like to weep over that may be difficult for you, but maybe if you change the word a little bit, maybe if you say, have you ever been motivated to do something because you felt like it was the right and the good thing to do? It was the religious thing to do and you weren't able to do that. And what did it cause in you? Maybe physical weeping or maybe just a weeping of your soul of just feeling like I just can't measure up. I'm not a good Christian. I can't do the good Christian things. I don't raise my hands. I don't clap. I don't sing. I'm not in a community group. I don't even like standing when we read God's word. Most of the time, I'm just checking to see when the service is over. I don't even know why I'm here, right? See, when we're motivated to worship out of religious motivation, if religion is motivating you to be here and to worship God, it's going to result in weeping every time. If you stand to revere God's word just because you're supposed to, there's no power in that. If you respond because everybody else says the same thing, what does that do? If you sing because the pastor told you to, and then sometime you're in a song and you notice some people raising their hands, you're like, okay, I guess this is the right time to raise your hand in the song. 
That's, there's nothing in that, right? It's just a feeling of like, man, I don't measure up. I'm not like these people. You join a community group, and if it's out of religious motivation, guess what happens? It's Wednesday. You're, oh my gosh, it's 6.30. I have community group in 30 minutes. Oh, maybe you actually physically start weeping then. And you're like, how do I get out of this? Am I sick? I think I'm sick. Right? Religiously motivated worship will cause weeping every single time. And that's what happens here. And look what happens. Nehemiah and Ezra, some of the leaders come before the people and look what they say. They say, go home and prepare a feast, holiday food and drink and share it with those who don't have anything. This day is holy to God. Don't feel bad. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah and Ezra, they say to the people, go home and celebrate. Stop mourning. Actually, it says that they should go home and eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. Meaning, go home, cook up a filet mignon, eat that and open a good bottle of wine. And then share it with other people that don't have it because today is a day of celebration. Why? Not because they measured up. Not because they're able to uphold the law. He tells you why. He says, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Your strength is not in your ability to maintain God's law. That's causing mourning and weeping. And I understand that. Stop mourning. Stop weeping. Go celebrate. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it says in verse 12, so the people went off to feast. They were eating and drinking, including the poor in a great celebration. And they got it. They understood the reading that had been given them. Here's what they understood. They understood that the reason that they were reading the book of the law, feeling condemned and convicted like they couldn't measure up, was not so that they could go away feeling condemned and mourning and weeping. It was to point them to something. It was to point them to their need for God's grace, their need for a savior, the reality that there is no way they could uphold what they're reading. But yet the joy of the Lord, the joy of God was to be their strength. What he has done, what he has accomplished in their life and what he has promised to continue to do in their life can actually still cause celebration and feasting and joy, even in the midst of the reality that they can't measure up. See, true worship is not motivated by religion. <coughs> true worship is motivated by God's grace. Romans 8 says this. I think this is so beautiful. It's connected exactly to this, the heart of worship. There is therefore now no condemnation. Look at each word here. For those who are in Christ, no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The reality that you can't measure up to God's standard. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. God has done what you could not do. You can't uphold his law. Here's what God did. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And who, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to to the spirit. Romans 8 is saying this, you can celebrate, you can rejoice, you can open up the good bottle of wine and eat filet mignon when you're leaving a worship service because it's not dependent upon you. You cannot uphold the law. You will fail at that. And yet God did what you couldn't do. He sent Christ 
who is his son, who perfectly fulfilled the requirement of the law, meaning he was in fact perfect. And then he was condemned to death for you so that what happens? So that now God views you in the likeness as if you, require, as if you actually fulfilled the law. You didn't, you can't, but in Christ you have because he's done it for you. And so we can now live our lives in celebration, not saying, I don't measure up, I'm not good enough, I'm a terrible Christian. But we can actually celebrate and live our life with joy and celebration because God's grace covers all of that because of what Christ has done for us. Verse 6 says, For we are to set our mind, on, to set your mind on flesh is death, but set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. When you set your mind on the gospel, the good news that God has done what you could not do for you in Christ, it causes you to celebrate. It causes you to want to worship. It causes you to want to gather with your family and with brothers and sisters in Christ together to revere God's word, to be audible, to be expressive, to break apart into community groups, not out of religious motivation, but really out of the reality that God has done everything for you. Chance the Rapper says this, the praises go up and the blessings come down, right? Here's what the gospel says. The blessing came down and now the praises go up and then the blessings can go out from us. It's the reality of the gospel, right? Jesus Christ came down for you and for me. So now we can praise him with celebration and with joy, and we can now live a life where we're to take the blessings of God out to other people. And so the question that I asked at the very beginning, does corporate worship matter? Yes, Sunday night at 6 p.m. matters a lot because God has called us together as one people, as one family to come together and to worship him, to remind ourselves of the gospel, of what God has done for us, that blessings came down in Christ to us, and we are to come together with one voice Revering God's word, being expressive in our worship to him, audible, breaking even then out from here in small groups, together as his family, and then going out and sharing with those in our neighborhood and those in our condo, those at our work in our city, the reality and the truth of the gospel. And that's what happens here at the very end. They said they went home and they celebrated and they shared what they had with anyone who didn't have it. That's the call of the church. And that's why what happens here matters. Let's pray.